said that there are two great tragedies in life. Not getting what you want and getting it. Now, truth be told, most of us would rather take our chances on the second part of that equation. As a matter of fact, the Bible seems to back that point of view. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 13 and verse 12, we're told that hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when the desire comes, it is a tree of life. You know, sometimes we think that the only people in this world who get their hearts dead set on something are little kids waiting for Christmas. But the fact of the matter is, in all of our lives at one time or another, we'll find ourselves focusing in on a real desire, something that we look upon and and that we long to see fulfilled within our lives. But as Christians, that can be a really confusing time. Because the more you think about something that you would really like to see realized in your life, the more you begin to wonder, now, is my desire in line with God's desire? How do you tell the difference? How do you know? How do you handle your desires in life as a believer in Christ? Well, tonight, in our continuing study in the book of 1 Samuel, as we move into 1 Samuel chapter 8, we're going to get into a study that we could call, Be Careful What You Ask For. We're going to follow along as the people of Israel expressed a desire of their heart, a desire that was not in keeping with God's will. And we'll discover some very important things about our desires and what it means to align our desires with God's great desire for our life. First, we'll see in this passage a section of Scripture that we could say uh, really has to do with a desire expressed. And, And we'll see exactly how our prayer life, the things that we express to God as our desires, can reveal an awful lot to us about what's going on in our own hearts. Secondly, we'll see a portion of Scripture that we could call desire explained. We'll see how God's answers to our prayers can oftentimes tell us quite a bit about what's going on in our hearts. And finally, we're going to see, most revealingly, I think, a portion of Scripture that we could call desire exposed. How asked and answered prayer can actually be one of God's primary tools for working and shaping and molding, yes, even healing our hearts. Let's pray and ask the Lord to take this study and allow the Lord tonight to even take your desires and line them up more closely, more in harmony with God's great desire for your life, that you would be like His Son. Father, thank You for Your love and and I thank You that the plans You have for us are so amazing, so tremendous, so mind-blowing that we can't even begin to understand them. And Lord, just to think that You give us the avenue of prayer, we can come into Your presence and say anything, and know that you and your wisdom, Lord, will ultimately know what's best for us. Teach us, Lord, to trust you in those areas, particularly areas where perhaps our view and what's going on in our lives are two different things. Help us to realize you have a plan. Help us to realize you always hear us and you're always near us, Lord. Teach us, Lord, now to trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're with us last week in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 7, we saw another prime example why the book of 1 Samuel has been called a book of transitions. 
we saw the people of Israel make a transition fully into the ministry of arguably one of the most godly people that you will ever find in the Scriptures, a man named Samuel. You'll notice that the stage was set in Israel by a national revival. There was a brokenness of heart among the people of Israel due to some incidents that had taken place regarding the Ark of the Covenant. And as the people of Israel's heart broke and their longing for God began to expand, well, that longing for the Lord, that desire for revival, was met with a real crisis. The people called the Philistines seized upon a time where all Israel was gathered together to worship and seek the Lord as a prime opportunity to attack. We saw that God used that time to show His faithfulness to Israel. God answered by defeating the Philistines by bombarding them literally with thunder from heaven, throwing them into confusion. Such confusion they were routed by Israel. Well, this time of deliverance was commemorated by Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12, we're told that Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Well, what Samuel was trying to do was to give the people of Israel a visual reminder of what God has done. You know, we have painfully short memories when it comes to the deliverances of God. It seems like with the Lord, as with a lot of things in life, one of the things we find ourselves saying is, yeah, that's great, but what have you done for me lately? Well, Samuel didn't want the people of Israel to forget not only that God had delivered, but also another very crucial lesson he desires to write upon the heart of all of his people. Thus far has the Lord helped us. Did you know that God doesn't promise you tomorrow? God doesn't promise us tomorrow. In the book of James, we're told that the length of our lives is as a morning fog. First you see it, and then it's gone. But when we look back at our past and we see how the Lord has been faithful, when we see ourselves right where we are, smack dab in the middle of what the Bible calls the day that the Lord has made, we realize that God will provide all the manna, all the sustenance, all the encouragement, all of the power to face the challenges you face today. And if you make it your business just today to walk hand in hand with the Lord, just today, then you're going to find your tomorrow's are going to have a funny way of taking care of themselves. By that, I'm not saying that we shouldn't wisely plan for our tomorrows or live in irresponsible ways. Far from it. But we need to focus in on those things that we can have impact on and not so much find ourselves captivated by a fear of the future that we miss God's goodness in the here and now. That's what that Ebenezer stone, that rock of remembrance was all about. But you know, even though this was a glorious time, and by the way, from the time that that Ebenezer stone was set up till the time we pick up our study tonight in verse 8, there had been 20 years of incredible peace and stability for Israel. All things had been going well. But you know, the winds of change were starting to blow. Although Samuel had done an awesome job of being a judge over Israel and leading them close to God, and God had given them peace on every side, people were looking at Samuel and starting to see the crow's feet getting a little bit deeper, starting to see the gate in his step getting a little bit slower. 
And so they started worrying about their future. And that set the stage for a real disaster. And that's where we pick things up in 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Now here we see Samuel again in harmony with the fact that he was a faithful man of God doing what every person of God should always be about the the business of doing. Has God raised you up in a particular area? Has He put you in a place where He is using you? Did you know that God's job won for us, no matter who you are, whether you're a pastor, whether you're a person in the pews, whether you're volunteering in a particular area, whether you just have, say, a a ministry of sharing the good news at, at work, at a health club, wherever you find yourself in your leisure time. Did you know that God always wants us to be about the business of working ourselves out of a job? I mean, we tend to be different about all that. We tend to find our niche in a church and we want to make ourselves indispensable or at least we want to think that we're indispensable. Well, it's been said, and accurately so, that the graveyards are filled with indispensable people. People who at one time in their life thought that the kingdom of God could not continue on without them that their businesses would utterly fail unless they were there to carry the weight of the world on their shoulders. It's just not true. In fact, God desires for us not to hog ministry to ourselves, not to be the only one who's doing everything. Maybe you've heard those statistics that 85% of the work in churches is done by 15% of the people. And usually that's used as an illustration that the average person in the pew is real lazy and uninvolved and isn't that terrible. You know, I think three-quarters of that problem is due to the fact that when we get into a particular area of ministry, man, we guard that with our lives. We attach our whole identity to it. God says, no, bring up other people that can do the same thing that you're doing. If it's a blessing to the whole body for you to do something as one person, just think of the multiplied blessing it's going to be if two or three people share your same sense of vision. And that's exactly what Samuel was doing. He was raising up his sons to take his place. He was literally doubling his effectiveness, at least in theory. And really, that's what we should do. How do you do that? Well, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-2 through 2, gives us a great flowchart for what we should be doing in terms of multiplying our effectiveness. Writing there, the Apostle Paul said, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And these things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Hey, our job is not done until we get other people involved in the very things that God has called us to do. Multiply your effectiveness. When we find ourselves multiplying our effectiveness, another amazing thing happens. We find ourselves far less likely to be divisive in the church. And so that's exactly what Samuel was doing. He raised up his firstborn son, Joel, who, by the way, had a very godly name. Joel literally means Yahweh is his God. His brother Abijah, literally that meant a worshiper of Yahweh. And so these guys had an awful lot going for them. They had godly names. They had a godly father. They had a godly example. They were surrounded by the Word of God. But we're also going to see they lack something very important. 
their own personal relationship with the Lord. Look at verse 3. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Boy, what an indictment from the Word of God. Here's Samuel's own children. If there were ever a couple of people who had no excuse for pleading ignorance, it was certainly these two. These two, among all else, saw their father walk consistently in the ways of God, but they turned aside. Well, isn't that shocking? But there's a very important principle here. God has no grandchildren. Just because one person in the family follows God doesn't mean everybody else will. We need to really understand that each and every person has to make their own personal declaration of faith in Jesus Christ. You know, oftentimes we think we're Christians because the rest of our family are Christians. Or we're Christians even because we find ourselves in a building like this with an awful lot of other Christians. Being a Christian isn't a question of geography. It's a question of where your heart's at. Is your heart right before the Lord? How did these guys get off track? Well, understand something. The reason they got off track, they took bribes and perverted justice was because I believe they got their eyes not on the things of heaven, but on the things of earth. Have you ever heard that old expression? Christians are so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. Well, really the Bible turns that one on its head. Really, the problem with Samuel's sons was they were so earthly minded, they were of no heavenly good. Let me tell you something. If you get your eyes on the things of this earth, if you forget there is a God, that there will be a judgment day, that each and every one of us will give an account before Him, particularly if you find yourself in a position of spiritual authority, very dangerous. You know, one thing I have discovered is that there is an awful lot of money to be made in religion if you have no ethics. If you throw ethics out the window, if you don't fear God, you can fleece people like you won't believe. And you see it all the time. These TV evangelists, these people on these Christian ostensibly networks, moaning and crying about how if you don't send your check in, we're going to go under and, oh, we're going to have to cut out ministry. And if we don't go, how will the work of God continue? Well, let me tell you something. The work of God is so flimsy. If God is in such hurting condition that if you don't send in $25, God's going to go broke, then we're worshiping the wrong God. We're not worshiping the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible does not need man's help to accomplish His will. Boy, woe unto these, some of these people who shake down sweet little old ladies who send in their social security checks to support the lavish lifestyle that these hucksters live upon. They do not fear God. They've perverted justice. Hey, they may, like Samuel's sons, have a Christian name. They may be able to sling the Christian spiritual hash. And when people are living in poverty are sending in money so that these people can drive their Rolls Royces and have their air-conditioned dog houses and rooms with solid gold shower fixtures, which some of these TV evangelists do, then something is desperately wrong. How do you keep from making that fatal error? 
how do you keep from losing your focus on the Lord and getting caught up in the things of the here and now? Oh, it's a real temptation to start chasing the almighty buck in this world. May I suggest to you, we need to realize that there are true riches to be had. In the book of Luke, chapter 21, listen to what Jesus Himself had to say. If you want something that is really going to keep you on the straight and narrow in your walk with the Lord, take Jesus' words seriously. Luke chapter 21 and verse 34. Jesus said, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life. And that day, that is the day that Jesus returns, come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. You know, I think the best cure for worldliness, quite simply, is this. Live for the world to come. Live for the true riches and then the false and fleeting and failing riches of this world will lose their allure to you. You know, you get involved with the cares of this life. You get involved with the material gain. You get involved in trying to outrun the rats in the rat race and there's no end to it. The only way that we can keep from cutting corners is realizing that we are headed for a date before God's throne. Now, character has best been defined as who you are when no one's watching. I think that's a great definition but it's slightly inaccurate. I think character really is who you are when no one but God is watching. And Joel and Abijah thought they were getting away with murder. They thought nobody knew any different about all this. They thought they were pulling a fast one even on God. And yet, even now, we see what their failure was all about. In fact, as clever as they thought they were, it wasn't just God who was on to them. Pretty much everybody else was on to them as well. Look at verses 4 and 5. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now here we see a fatal mistake being made by the people of Israel. Do you catch what the mistake is? Believe it or not, it's not asking for a king. That's not the mistake they made. Did you know that there was a provision made in God's law for a king who would rule over Israel? At one time in the history of Israel, God would give them a king. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, verses 14 through 15, we even see that this was God's will for them at one point. Notice what it says. When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren you shall set as a king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And then it goes on and it describes some of the restrictions that God would place upon a king who would rule over Israel. So it wasn't that it was wrong for the people of Israel to have a king. I've heard some people teach this passage and they say, oh, it was bad because they asked for a king. No, it wasn't what they asked for that was wrong. 
Please catch this. It was why they asked that was wrong. Do you catch why they asked for a king? It wasn't because they said, well, you know, in, in Deuteronomy 17, it said that we have a king and we just want to follow what the Lord wants. No. What did they want? They wanted a king so they could be like all the other nations. They wanted to be just like everybody else. And isn't that just human nature in, in, in its purest form? I mean, how many parents out there have heard your kids say, well, I want to do X and such. And you go, well, why would you want to do such a crazy thing? And they go, well, everybody's doing it. Maybe you can remember a time in your life where you even said that to your parents. Man, if I don't show up looking like everybody else and acting like everybody else, I'm going to be in big trouble. Man, everybody's doing it. Everybody's going. And you know, of course, what your parents said to you. Yeah, but you're not everybody. Or maybe even they dumped this one on you. Well, if everybody was going to go jump off a cliff, would you do that too? Ha, 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 ha. You know, it's a real old fuddy-duddy alert when you find yourself in this life saying those things to someone else. Because when you say them to someone else, when you say that to your children, basically you'll see their faces contort and see them just get that distasteful look that you yourself used to have when your parents dropped it on you. We want to be just like everybody else. Do you understand what was so wrong about that for Israel? God's whole plan for Israel was that they wouldn't be like everybody else. God's plan for them was to stand out like a sore thumb. In fact, a number of their laws, even the dietary laws of Israel, uh, the restrictions they had about planting two different types of seed in a particular field, even the fact that they were not allowed by the law of Moses say, to wear the color red or to wear fabrics that were made out of two different fibers. I believe that was God guarding people from the fashion blunder of polyester, by the way. But that's another story. But all those things were put in place basically so that God's people would stand out. But the most important way they were to stand out was that the Lord was to be their king. The Lord was to be the one who was calling the shots, not some earthly king. They weren't to worship idols made of stone, the work of men's hands, man's ideas about God. They were to worship God in spirit and in truth. They were to be completely different. And now we see them abandoning that and say, we want to be just like everybody else. It wasn't what they asked, you see, that was the problem. It was why they were asking. What they asked for was scriptural, but why they asked was not. Boy, isn't that a very important principle for us to take seriously? Stop and think for just a second. How many times have you asked God for something and He flat out turned you down? And then maybe looking back on it all, you kind of had to shake your head and say, well, I think I kind of know why the answer to that prayer was no because my heart wasn't in the right place. Well, in the book of James, James, in his characteristic gift of bluntness, talks about this phenomena. James chapter 4 and verse 1 says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? 
You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. You see, God isn't going to bless our selfishness. God promises to meet our needs, but He isn't going to indulge your greeds. Because God doesn't want you to grow up to be a spoiled, insufferable brat for Jesus Christ. Period. So crucial for us when we come before the Lord with our requests. Not just to step back and say, is what I'm asking for scriptural? But also to ask ourselves a very penetrating question. Is the reason I'm asking for this scriptural? I mean, consider one of the requests that really comes knocking on the doors of a lot of people sooner or later in their lives. Well, in my ministry, in college and career and in singles ministry, I've seen this request lifted up before the Lord a lot of times. People asking God to give them a spouse, to give them a family. And you know what? That is a completely biblical request. Proverbs chapter 18 And verse 22, I mean, a lot of single people have claimed this verse. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and finds blessing and favor from the Lord. Completely scriptural to be in a marriage relationship. And so a lot of people will claim that verse and pray that verse, and yet nothing seems to happen. And I go, what's up? I thought God wanted to give me that. I'm even claiming the right scripture. But then you have to ask them, why are you asking for that spouse? Are you asking for a spouse because you want a slave? Someone that's going to come along and take care of business for you? Someone that's, you know, going to cook and clean and, you know, uh, sweep up after you and pick up the Cheetos crumbs from your couch? God's not going to bless that any more than any of you out there who have daughters would want someone to marry someone like that. Sometimes... We even come before God and we say, you know, I'd really like a spouse because really the bottom line is I want a substitute. The love of God's not enough for me. And so I need someone to fill that emptiness in my heart, to fill that emptiness in my life because I can't really look to God for that. And God looks at it and goes, I can't bless that. Because if you look to someone else to meet a need in your life that only God can fill, you are destining yourself for a life of frustration and conflict and emptiness. Because the love that you are looking for in a member of the opposite sex, truth be told, is the unconditional love that God Himself alone can provide. God alone can give that to us. In the book of Jeremiah, it's a very important scripture that I think can keep us from making this crucial mistake. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, listen to this indictment of Israel. A very common error, but one that's very relevant to us. Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 says, Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. Man, this sounds like bad news, doesn't it? For my people have committed two evils. 
They have forsaken Me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In other words, you can have everything. Your thirst for unconditional love and acceptance can be met in God. But if you turn from God and try to find it in something or someone else, it's a broken cistern. It won't hold water. And those of you who have looked for love in all the wrong places say, yeah, I've run into a lot of crackpots in my search who probably bear witness to all of that. But a very important principle there. It's not just what we ask that matters. It's why we ask. Why we ask. How can we make sure that our motives are right in asking? Well, that can be a tough thing if we try to search our own hearts. But in Psalm 139 and verse 23, there's a remarkable prayer that King David prayed that I believe can give us clarity concerning our motives when we bring our desires before God. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be a wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. If you ask God to show you what's really going on in your heart, better buckle your seatbelt because He's going to show you. In fact, He'll probably show you more than you really wanted to know about the twisted motives that run around in your fallen human heart. Just like the twisted motives that run around in my human heart. And so, very important principle here. The people of Israel are asking for the right thing, but for the wrong reasons. Now, you're Samuel. Try to imagine being Samuel. You're Samuel, and they've come to you with this request. How do you deal with this? Well, take a look at verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. (laughs) You better believe it displeased Samuel. Because you know what they were saying? Samuel... You're a great spiritual leader, but your kids are a wreck. We would no more follow them than we would take directions from them to go around the block. They're corrupt. They don't walk in your ways. They're awful. Now, I don't know a lot about human nature. But I do know this. If you really want to get someone mad at you, criticize their house pets or their children. You really want to offend people, do that. And, and I mean, it's a sneaky thing because people feel they are entirely entitled to sit around and carp and complain about that lousy dog and I can't believe what he did last time. He dug up the food. But if you jump in and say, yeah, that mud is worthless. Watch the situation change. What? Well, what gives you the That's a great dog. Man, you're the one with the problem. Boy, it gets more intense. When you hear people complaining about their kids. Oh, that kid of mine. I can't believe that kid. Oh, you're driving me up the wall. Yeah, your kid really is kind of a bad seed. Oh, man, get ready to duck. That's what they were saying to Samuel. I mean, the words, hey, nothing personal, but that it always is personal. I mean, that's how it always works. Nothing. Per- I don't mean anything personal by this, but your kids are a wreck, Samuel. They don't walk in your ways. They don't walk after the Lord. Now, no wonder it displeased Samuel. So how does Samuel react? Well, I've seen your kid and he's no great shakes either. Is that what he did? I love this about Samuel. Look 
at verse 6. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. You know, Samuel didn't return fire for fire. Samuel had this relationship with God where God truly was his refuge. And understanding this can really give you some insight into the Psalms. You ever had someone say to you, man, you really want to get into a neat portion of the Word of God. You've got to get into the Psalms. And so you start reading through them. You know, and, and some of them are just really neat. Psalm 23, wow, Lord is my shepherd, that's really great. But then you get into a portion of the Psalms that the highfalutin theological minds call the imprecatory Psalms. Where the psalmist starts saying things like, break their teeth off in their mouths, Lord. Man, visit judgment on them. Not just judgment on them, but their kids' kids that aren't even born yet. We kind of go, whoa. That's a little heavy. Why is that in the Word of God? I mean, if I'd been an editor, I would have said, uh, neat stuff, very poetic. Ah, Let's just mark it right on out with the delete pen right now. Let's just you know get this off the hard drive as quick as we can. Why is that stuff in there? I'll tell you why it's in there. It's an object lesson for us. Because when David and the other people that were used by God to write psalms would write these imprecatory psalms and they were saying these things to God, you know who they weren't saying them to? The people that had bugged them. The people that had gotten their goat. They were leaving these things before the throne of God. And you know, one principle that I have been really trying to work out in my life personally is a very simple principle, but one that I think we need to pay very close attention to. It does a lot more good to talk with God about men than it does to talk with men about God. It does me a lot more good to bring my complaints about people before the Lord who can actually do something about them than it is for me to let my tongue get going and start spreading you know, destructive speech like wildfire. Because that just cheapens me. When I cut down somebody else, I'm cutting down myself. Far better to express any anger, any disappointment, even any bitterness we might feel, to God Himself. There's a funny thing happens when we come before God with all of this. We're reminded of something. In God's eyes, we're no prize either. In God's eyes, we've needed a lot of grace and a lot of forgiveness. And if He has been that gracious and kind to us, surely we can be kind to others. A great psalm that I think portrays this beautifully is Psalm 56. The next time someone really gets your goat, the next time someone really bugs you, the next time someone maybe even hurts you in a devastating way, I'd encourage you, if you've never done this before, it's a really wonderful thing to do in your prayer time. Just pray this psalm out loud to God. Psalm 56 says, Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. Fighting all day, he oppresses me. My enemies would hound me all day. For there are many who fight against me, O Most High. Whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in You. In God, I will praise His Word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? All day they twist my words, and their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather together. They hide. They mark my steps. When they lie in wait for my life, shall they escape by iniquity? 
In anger, cast down the peoples, O God. You number my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is for me. In God, I will praise His Word. In the Lord, I will praise His Word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Boy, when you pray that, and you just sort of insert your situation into the midst of that, it just has such a calming effect, such a calming influence. Because you know that the Lord's heard. And you know that you've been honest before God. You're not just learning how to be a spiritual stuffing artist where you just keep all this stuff down inside and you stuff and you stuff and you stuff until finally someone comes up to you and says, hey, uh, you know, uh, you know, you're not looking so good today. And you blow up at them because they go, whoa, where did all that come from? And it came because you stuffed all this stuff down inside. Keep short accounts, gang. Don't put a heavy lid on a boiling pot. If someone gets your anger to boiling, you bring it before the Lord. You bring it before God. You have to get out by yourself. You have to do some yelling towards heaven. Then do it. But it's better to get those things out before the Lord. Before whom you can say anything. I mean, after all, who are we trying to kid? God knows what's going on in our hearts. It's better to get those things out before God who can hear us and calm us and heal us than it is to get those words out in the hearing of those around us and let them do their damage. Because people will tend to be a lot less forgiving, take it from me, than God. And people will be a lot less understanding than God. Give your burden. Give your anger to the Lord. That's what Samuel did. He left it with God. And interestingly, God had a very interesting perspective on this that he shared with Samuel. Look at verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they've forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will rule over them. <laughs> you know what God said to Samuel? Tell me about it, man. <laughs> They've been the same way to me. In fact, right now, this whole deal with the asking for a king, they're not rejecting you. They just don't want me ruling over them. It's not your kids that have them torqued. It's the idea that they can be like everybody else. Every other kingdom that ever lived with their own selfish, pompous, tax-gulping king. That's what they want. They don't want me. They've forgotten all about that Ebenezer stone. They've forgotten all about how good things have been for 20 years. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. Boy, let me tell you something. That is a real place of comfort for us. We catch grief from people. Hey, if you're going to catch grief, and we all catch grief in this world, there's nobody immune to it. But if you're going to catch grief from people in this world, I found one thing makes all the difference. Why you're catching the grief. Now, if you're catching the grief because you've been an idiot, <laughs> there's not much comfort in that, is there? But if you're catching grief because you've been walking with the Lord, 
because you've been faithful to Him. That's a different matter entirely. Consider what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 11. He said this, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for My sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now notice, two ways to suffer and catch grief in the right way. Number one, Jesus said, when you catch grief, first of all, make sure they're giving you grief falsely. Not because you've earned it. Not because you've been walking around trying to act like Holy Joe or Josephine. Not because you've been pompous or you've been lazy or you've been bad on the job. If you're going to suffer, suffer for the right reasons. Because they see Jesus in you. Notice, suffer for the right reasons. Make sure that it's falsely that you're suffering and being persecuted. But secondly, make sure it's for His sake. For His sake. Not because you've been trying to get your will done. Not because you've been doing some kind of religious act. Make sure if they're going to reject you, it's because they reject Jesus Christ. Because they see Him in you. And if you stand for the Lord and you catch grief in this world, well, Jesus said the payoff for that is going to be tremendous for you someday. And so that was Samuel's comfort. What God was saying to Samuel is, look, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They're rejecting me. So, they had a little lesson to learn. God says, all right, I'm going to give them what they ask for. But before they make the final decision, let's make sure they really understand what they're getting into. Verse 10, So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, This will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. Here's what you get. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. will set some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, and some to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. And he'll take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He'll take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officers and his servants. And he'll take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men, and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you'll be his servants. And you will cry out in that day because of the king whom you've chosen for yourselves and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Here's what you get. Talk about full disclosure. You ever got to buy a car? You know, wouldn't it be wonderful if when you bought that car, the car dealer sat down and gave you that kind of full disclosure? Said, okay, here's what you're going to get. About, you know, 25,000 miles in, your brakes are going to start to squeak. And then you're going to have to take your car in and you're going to have to spend about five days before our shop gets it out and then we'll get you your car back and then we'll give you a big bill for that. And then stay a little bit down the line, you know, about 60,000 miles. Boy, your timing belt's going to go out and you know, we put plastic timing belts in our cars so they do go out. And Boy, if you don't change that timing belt, then you know, all your pistons are going to just blow up your engine and all that other stuff and you're going to have to replace your whole engine. But, you know, hey, no problem because... Replacing that timing bill will only be about $500, but hey, you know, you got 60,000 miles to think about that. So, I mean, could you imagine buying a car like that? I mean, they give you full disclosure. They can give you a computer printout of every single stinking problem you'd ever have with that car. 
Oh, and yeah, by the way, you know, when your kid throws up in the back and you have that smell for the, you know, about 10,000 miles or so, that's going to happen about, you know, mile 75,000 or so. Could you imagine that? I mean, you think twice about ever buying a car, right? Well, we don't get that kind of a deal, but God gives them that deal. God says, you sign up for a king, this is what you're going to get. He's going to tax you back to the Stone Age. He's going to take your kids. He's going to take your donkeys. He's going to take your land. It's all going to be for him. And it's finally going to get so bad, you're going to cry out to me, and guess what? I'm not going to listen. Why? Because you're going to get just what you asked for. I'm telling you right now. You want out of this deal? Get out now. And God lays that out. Once again, we come back to that principle. Two great tragedies in life. Not getting what you want and getting it. Getting it was going to be the ultimate tragedy. And have you ever noticed that? That sometimes God will give people what they want and a little bit more. A little bit more than what they bargained for. great example of this is found in the book of Isaiah, chapter 38 and 39. We really don't have time to go through there verse by verse, but let me tell you the account. King Hezekiah, whom you've probably heard of, you know, like it's the old joke, turn to the book of Hezekiah, and everybody looks around, oh, there's no book of Hezekiah. But there was a Hezekiah. He was a king over Israel. He was a pretty good king. He loved God. But he got to a place in his life where he got sick. He got deathly ill. And the prophet Isaiah came in and said, get your affairs in order. You're not going to survive this. You're going home. And Hezekiah, you know, just, oh, he cried out to the Lord and he mourned and lamented and turned his face to the wall and said, oh God, if you just have mercy on me, if you just heal me, just give me a little bit longer to live, oh, it'd be great. And so Isaiah the prophet comes back and goes, guess what? God has heard your request. He's going to give you 15 more years to live. Hezekiah goes, well, how do I really know that God's going to do that? He says, well, ask for a sign. You want the sun to go down a few steps on the, the, uh, the sundial of Ahaz? Or do you want it to go back? Oh, well, going backwards, that'd be a great sign. Sun going backwards on that thing. So it did. went backwards. And lo and behold, Hezekiah got better. God answered his prayer. But that 15 years were pretty crucial. Because after Hezekiah got better, we are told that emissaries were sent from Babylon. The king of Babylon had heard that Hezekiah had been deathly ill and had been healed. And so he sent these emissaries along. And Hezekiah, you know, feeling great now and kind of full of himself, said, Hey, let me give you the whole royal tour. And so he gives him the whole royal tour. He shows these emissaries all of the golden articles in the temple of God. And once he kind of gets done, sort of strutting his stuff and saying, you know, I'm a pretty important king. I've got some pretty neat stuff around here. And I'm saying, oh, yeah, you're great. You're going your way. Isaiah comes walking up and says, who are those guys? Oh, they're emissaries from Babylon. Says, what did you show them? Oh, I showed them everything. I showed them all the implements and all the gold things in the temple of God. And Isaiah says, yeah, you did that. And did you realize that all those gold implements that you sold them, that you showed them, they're all going to haul off back to Babylon when they conquer you guys. He stayed around long enough to get proud. Even worse than that, in that 15 years, you know what else Hezekiah did? He had a son. Not just any son, but a son that he named Manasseh. Manasseh ended up, catch this, being 
the longest reigning, absolute worst king that Israel ever had in their entire history. Hezekiah's will was done. And who knows, maybe at the end of it all, Hezekiah kind of looked at things and said, hmm, maybe it would have been good if I'd checked out about 15 years before this. Well, sometimes God will give us what we ask for. But you know what? We don't even know what we're asking. We don't even know what we're asking. And sometimes when God grants a request that seems so good to us, man, it's just nothing but disaster. Nothing but disaster. How do you keep from making that mistake? I mean, you might be saying, well, that's all well and good, but you know, if I'd been in Hezekiah's shoes, I would have been asking for healing. And how did I know that wasn't God's will? And, and how do I you know, know that I won't make these kind of mistakes? I'll tell you how you know. Very simple. Simple thing. This is not popular teaching, by the way. This doesn't get you on Christian television, but it's the truth. When you pray... When you bring your desires before the Lord, one key that will guarantee you 100% God's answers to your prayer. Pray, if it be your will, O Lord. Now, I realize in certain Christian circles, they would say, oh man, you're just killing faith. Because faith, you know, is coming before God and saying, God, I'm going to rattle the gates of heaven and I'm a king's kid and I'm going to tell you what you need to do for me and I'm going to tell you exactly what your business is and what's right for me, what's best for me. Because I'm a king's kid and I'm going to stand on my authority. I'm going to name it and claim it and blab it and grab it. I'm going to keep claiming, keep claiming, keep claiming until you finally give me what I want. I'll write my own ticket with you. And heaven forbid if you say to these people, well, shouldn't you pray if it's your will? Oh, no, because that gives you an out, see? then you don't have to just keep holding on expecting God to come through for you in what you ask. And some of these guys even say that praying if it be your will is the ultimate faith killer. Well, i got a problem with that. Because when the chips were down in Jesus' life and He was in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating as it were great drops of blood, facing the most crucial moment of His entire life, staring down the barrel of the cross, what did He pray? Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus didn't say it once. He said it twice. Well, if that's a faith killer, then please kill my faith. Because Jesus, I think, showed that praying, if it be your will, it's not a faith killer, it's a faith fulfiller. It's the ultimate trust in God to say, Lord, you know how important this is to me. You know, this is life and death to me. You know, there's nothing I would desire more than what I'm bringing before you. But I trust you. I trust you that you know what you're doing. And so I give it to you. And when you do that, you come to realize something very important to understand. Did you know God answers every prayer? God answers every single prayer request you bring before Him. He has three answers to any request you ever bring before Him. Yes, no, and wait. And you know, the more I've gone on in the Christian life, there are times where I've come to realize that God's most loving answers to me sometimes have been no. I love what Ruth Graham 
says about this. Ruth Graham said that if God had answered all of her prayers just the way that she had prayed them, she would have married the wrong man seven times. But God said no, because God had Billy for Ruth. And Ruth for Billy. God knows what He's doing. But we have a problem with that. We like to think we know what we're doing. And so God lays out, look, if you want a king, this is exactly what you're going to get. And when you get this, don't come back to me and say, please fix this. You've got to live with it. Notice what the people say. After all this, after all this total disclosure, verse 19, nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but we will have a king over us. That we may be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Do you see what they were looking for? Security. If we have a king, see, like all these other people have kings, and we'll see in 1 Samuel chapter 12 what was motivating this request. People called the Amorites were starting to raise their ugly heads. The Philistines had been put down, but the Amorites made the Philistines look like kindergartners. And so they looked at the Amorites and they said, oh, well, yeah, God did that once, but, but these are Amorites. They're bigger and badder. God can't handle this. And so we want to put our faith in man. Isn't that funny? When the going gets tough, how often we want to put our faith in man instead of our faith in God. God says you're barking up the wrong tree. But at least they were honest about it. They said, this is what we want. God's not going to be our king. We're going to get ourselves a big bad king and he's going to fight all our battles first and everything is going to be great. <laughs> well, verse 21, And Samuel heard all the words of the people and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. You know, if I'd been Samuel and I just had that session with God where God had laid out all these truths and given me all this revelation and I just laid out this revelation to the people and saying, it's going to be bad and He's going to tax you and He's going to do this and you're not going to have your kids around, your donkeys and your vineyards and your flocks and you know it's all going to be about Him and it's not going to be about you. Don't you want to reconsider? They go, nope, we want what we want. I'd look at them and I'd say, you are so, so bad! Let me tell you a few things about how I think about you. Samuel doesn't do it. He brings it before the Lord. And you know, something else about all of this, Samuel was a good shepherd. He cared about the people. He saw this colossal mistake the people were making and undoubtedly it broke his heart to see it happen. But what does he do? He brings it before the Lord. He brings it before God. And you know what? He leaves it there. That's the key to peace. So often we try to get our grubby little hands over uh, everything and straighten out everything in our lives and God says, no, give it to me. You know what Philippians 4, 6 and 7 says? You know, one of those basic verses that I think we learn early on in the Christian life, straight out of the Jesus person pocket promise book, but so practical. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 says, be anxious for nothing. Isn't that a big word? Nothing, no thing. If it's a thing, don't be anxious about it. <laughs> that, that's your parameter. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And we don't have to get freaked out about life. We don't have to get freaked out about things 
that we have no control over. Well, you want a recipe to destroy your mental health. Spend all your time worrying and fretting about things you have no control over. That's been a hard one for me to learn. But you know where I've learned it the most? You have A game. You have A game. I used to live and die with the Wildcats. I used to be so into it. You know, and you need to understand, I was raised in this this Pac-10 home. My brother went to UCLA and my dad went to Washington. So when U of A would play either of those schools or really any other school and we'd blow it, I'd hear about it big time. So I used to just live and die with these guys. And man, you know, it was just, if the U of A won, everything was great. And if the U of A lost, then everything was just, oh, I'd be grousing around for days. Until finally it dawned on me. I didn't play. I wasn't in the game. All my sitting there on the stands going, Gar, you wild cats, and screaming and yelling. Nothing whatsoever to do with the outcome. I was burning a hole in my stomach over something I had no control over. So if I can't take the credit, why should I take the blame? So now when my relatives, my brother and my dad calls me up or they email me to give me grief, I'll just go, hey, I didn't throw the interception. I can't do anything about it. It's not my fault. And neither can I sit around and say, yeah, you know, it wasn't for me screaming over there. We went like, who am I? That way I can just enjoy it for what it is. Entertainment. It's not life and death. And you got things in your life that are like that. You ever try to control things you got no control over? People. And how they react to you. I mean, everybody else can think you're wonderful and there's that one person, right? That one person who gives you stink eye and your whole day's ruined. And you spend your whole life just thinking about how can I get this person to like me? And you're wasting your time. You have no control over that. Let it go. Commit it into the hands of God. You just worry about being faithful. You know, the only thing that I ultimately have control over in this life, the only thing that you have control over in this life is my decision and your decision today to walk hand in hand with God. That's it. The rest of it is pretty much up for grabs. Because there's a whole lot of things that can get between you and me and accomplishing our will in a day. But nothing can separate us from the love of God. Make that your focus. That's what Samuel did. He repeated the words of the people in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, Heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Every man go to his city. Well, they were going to get a king. But you know what else they were going to get? They were going to get a big time lesson on Heavenly Father knows best in the process. Their first king... We're going to meet him next week. It was a guy named Saul. <laughs> and although he looked good on the outside, he was anything but on the inside. He was everything that Samuel warned about. They were going to learn, and they were going to learn the hard way. And you know, I think this is the other thing that God teaches us through our desires. We bring our desires before God, and you bring them before the Lord, and you lay them out before Him and say, God, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. But this is what I'd really like to see. One thing you can count on is God will answer your prayer. But He will answer your prayer in a way that's probably going to teach you far deeper things than you ever bargained for. The Apostle Paul experienced that. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 13, or chapter 12, I should say, he speaks of God giving him a thorn in the flesh, 
a messenger of Satan to buffet him. Three times, he said, he entreated the Lord to remove that affliction from him. And three times God said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made manifest in weakness. Paul said, Therefore I am well content in troubles, in distresses, in tribulations for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The desire of Paul's heart was to be healed and delivered. God said, no, I've got something better. Grace. Understanding grace. Understanding my strength. And you know, I think that's what our desires can teach us. That God has a better way. That God has deeper things than just being our sugar daddy in the sky. You know, the next time you find yourself longing for things in your life, two things you really need to do. Lean on the Lord and look to learn from the situation. Psalm 37, beginning at verse 3, says this, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him and He shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Let's pray. Father, thanks. We come before You oftentimes seeking the pieces of the puzzle of our lives. But You come to us and want to give us something better. Your peace that passes understanding. Your peace that can guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Your perfect peace that that we can stay in if we keep our minds and hearts stayed upon You. Lord, You know our needs. And like any loving Father, You delight 